giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Steve Took. Hey, Steve. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. So your Twitter bio, which I like, says that you help people build great software. Yeah, um, that's something I've been trying to do uh, for a while now, I guess. Uh It's just... um, find different ways of help, helping people build things that are great. How, what are your what are your tricks? What are my tricks? Yeah, um, I'm sure it's a, one of those it's a that's a very loaded question, but what's your approach for if I was like, "Hey, I want to write better code and better software. How do I do it?" Well, okay, so in terms of um writing better code, I don't know if that was necessarily exactly what I meant. Um okay. but that's I guess that's part of it as well. Um but writing better code i think it's just about trying to take a bit of care and uh finding ways to get an idea test it out quickly see if it works and then figure out how to make it a bit better i guess Hmm. it's it's funny that you distinguish between like writing great code and writing great software because like as a developer myself it's like oh well like as long as the code is great then we've got great software but that's just so not true Uh, yeah it's it's not it's definitely not true and um it has to be valuable to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the harder part of what we do is like building things that are, are, are valuable uh, or knowing that we're building things that are valuable. Definitely. Building the right thing and tweaking yeah. it appropriately and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So like, what does your day-to-day look like? Um, well, so at the moment, um, I'm working a few days a week uh, with a client in, in London, um, a startup. They're building a social music platform, um, but I'm not. I'm not coding on that project. Um, mm. I'm. I guess I'm working as a coach. Originally, I was there to help their product owner and BAs, um, and I took that to mean help them communicate their ideas with the with the developers, the technical team better. Gotcha. So are you are you acting kind of a, as a liaison between them, or just training them to do it better themselves? Um, I'm just helping them do it better themselves, just improve that. The communication between them, um, having them be able to figure out what they want to build together rather than kind of write stories and throw them over the wall. Yeah. So is that is that the main thing you're doing then, is encouraging collaboration between them or are you like coaching them on new ways to describe what they want? Um, I guess all of that, really. So sometimes it's about um, giving them uh, tools and techniques and ways of communicating the ideas and... Uh, some of the time it's just helping them figure out ways to collaborate more and it's 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 got to be about collaboration i mean that's the that's the biggest part of what we do is um writing code is probably the easy bit figuring out how to talk to other people about what they need and why they need it is is the hard part of software development i think oh yeah for sure i've said before on this podcast actually that like i think most problems boil down to communication problems yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like not just in software, but like everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, just the other day, there was uh, a conversation um, I was involved in talking about, you know, future releases and the direction of the business. And two of the senior partners in the business um, had a slightly different understanding of one of the main parts of what the software should do uh-huh. and how that would affect their partnerships with, with other people. Right. Um, and it was just really interesting to hear that actually right at the top of the business there wasn't quite alignment of what that meant right and such a crucial conversation but it's, it's so easy to and they i bet you if you had asked them they would have said we're absolutely on the same page uh, yeah right yeah. and and 
and they probably are on the same page, but it's 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 just expressing what that means that's uh, slightly different. Yep. Uh, it's the, so the, easy to think that you have communicated effectively and that like understanding has been reached and to find out that's actually not the case. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen like exercises which are like, okay, now that you've had this discussion and come to a conclusion, have someone else restate the conclusion and make sure that everyone agree in the room agrees with it. And it's like you will often find that, you know, there's there's nuance that hasn't been lost or, you know, just straight up misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, the thing is everyone in the room at the time um thinks they understand it. And the shape of the conclusion in their heads may not quite match up afterwards. Mm-hmm. And even if you, so, so one of the, I mean, I guess that's why people started having minutes of meetings was so that they could, not just for the people who weren't there, but for the people who were there to, someone would write up, I guess, their idea of what, what happened and <laughs> send it around. And if people read it, they, they can check that they believe that that was the same thing that was said. Uh, how often that happens, I don't know. Yeah, totally. So you, you mentioned that you're not coding on this project. How does that feel? It's probably the first project, first time I've been involved in a project over a long term that I've not been coding on it. Um, it's different. There's been a few times um, where I, I've wanted to express um, opinions on things and I'm trying to let the team figure those things out for themselves at times. So uh, I've said a few things and then left it open to them to come and chat to me if they want to. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's not it's it's not too bad on this particular project actually because most of the development is going on in iOS and Java um, and uh, well I, I haven't done any iOS development really other than toy things and uh, I haven't written very much Java uh, in the last few years so mm-hmm. but it's still interesting it, the, it's funny it doesn't really matter about the language that you're writing in a lot, a lot of the problems and solutions have the same shape you know the, 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 that i mean that's what software patterns are isn't it they are mm-hmm. uh, things that have been done multiple times to solve problems um that can you can recognize in in other places mm-hmm. yeah so it's interesting i've done um i guess you would call it coaching uh like short term like a couple of days like coming into a company with an existing existing development team and kind of seeing what's going on and trying to figure out some of the problems and offering some advice and Sometimes the advice is like, okay, here's how you can write code that might be a little bit easier to change later on. But a lot of the times, the recommendations to, that I feel like I'm making that are most important are about, you know, communications changes or like, you know, you really need to fire this person. Like, this is person's not a good fit. This or or something. Um, it's it's often not that much about the the code base. Yeah, and and I mean, the the project here is really interesting. They're they're doing lots of things with. Um, like an event sourcing architecture and microservices. And um, so it's, it's, it's exciting to see lots of those things going on. Um, but yeah, if the, at the end of the day, they've got lots and lots of smart developers um, at the moment. And it's like code quality isn't a problem. I can, I was have I had a really good conversation with the iOS developers yesterday about their testing strategies. And I think that's interesting how TDD is, I, I don't know what the shape of what the state of TDD is in the iOS area, but, the guys on the team here seem to be discovering the idea that you can have testing at different levels. Not all of the testing needs to go through the UI all the way through to the back end and mm-hmm. um, how they can build their architecture to uh, enable that or how they can use the test to drive an architecture, which is easy to test, I guess, is the right way to think about it. Yeah. And uh, Well, you, so wrote a, then... you just wrote a blog post about this, more or less. Your tests want you to change your design. Uh, yeah, that was probably a little while ago now. I'm my, yeah. my, I don't blog terribly regularly. Um, something I need to improve. But yeah, it, it, exactly. Test 
the thing about TDD is, um, I, or the main thing for me is it gives you a chance, A, to know when you've, gives you lots of little wins so you can write a little bit and get to green. But also the thing about, the thing about testing is when something is hard to test, it's often not finding a way to work around why it's hard to test. Maybe it means you should change your design to enable testing to be easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really simple statement to say. Uh, right. It's not. It's not always that easy to do. Of course. Um, but it's. But it does give you. Does give you indicators. Mm-hmm. Michael Feathers has a nice talk about this. The, the deep. Oh, yeah. The deep synergy between testing and good design, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is that is a great talk actually. We can throw a link to that in our show notes, but that's 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 a good watch. I enjoyed that. Plus I like any talk that has deep synergy in the title. Deep synergy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can get that accepted almost anywhere because like the enterprise conferences will assume that it's about, you know, business synergy. Yeah, yeah. One blue sky thinking and uh... <laughs> right. You could get that accepted at Java 1 or whatever it's called. So you had an interesting tweet recently which was uh what should be at the top of my reading list? Oh yeah, so um just I like reading books and um I picked up a book. Some someone I was reading a tweet somewhere and someone recommended a book which I just bought on Amazon and I realized that there's loads of books. I'm just gonna try and find out what that book was because it's just dropped off my head. I went I I just bought it straight away because I really like I really like the sound of it. Nice. Anyway, so someone someone had um recommended a book uh in a tweet or something. I thought that's great. I thought, hang on, there's there's loads of books that I'm I should probably read. Mm-hmm. It was George Dinwoody recommended a book and in it he said um i don't read many books uh, that are related to my work at all I, I try and read books in in other areas all the time this is a great book so i thought oh, i'll send out a tweet saying what books would you recommend just to see what people would recommend generally based on what it was and i, I had a few books um recommended yeah could you could you share a couple yeah so kevin rutherford recommended uh the elements of programming style by kernigan and Plauger, mm-hmm. um, which I've had a quick look at, look for on Amazon, uh, but doesn't it seems to be an old book that's out of print. I haven't read it, but any, I tend to take anything that Kevin Rutherford suggests as a good idea. Okay. Um, and then the other one was System Performance by Brendan Craig. Brendan Gregg. Hmm. Uh, John Topley recommended I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes as a novel. Um, and my dad came back and <laughs> recommended. The Incredible Unlikeness of Being by Dr. Alice Roberts. Huh. Okay. Uh, which my dad uh, is studying for a degree in archaeology, and I'm guessing this is an anthropology type book about how humans got together, uh, or not got together, but my dad said, you know, it's perfectly related to mine and my wife Bev's upcoming event because we're having a baby in November. So. Oh, gotcha. My parents yeah. are not on Twitter. I wish they were. I would subtweet them like crazy. Yeah, or whatever. I don't. I don't even know what that means, honestly. So, but I would it's, do it. It's, it's subtweeting the uh, the copying of the URL into the tweet where the the new. I new don't know. I thought it was like retweeting something that's like further down a chain, out of context, or something. I get the impression uh, it's negative. People seem to dislike it, but I I have no idea what it is. Oh, okay. I always think that's a great idea because then you find interesting things in conversations and you can look at the conversation yeah i think people do it to like intentionally take things out of context okay to like make someone look bad but okay again this is just conjecture so you should go look this up on like urban dictionary or wherever these things are defined so if you like uh, old books that are out of print that are good programming reads um how to design programs is a really interesting book how, how to design programs yeah it's so you can read it online i believe uh, as well hard copies are a little bit harder to come by 
but it's it's the first book I've read that really tries to answer that question in like a really methodical way. Like, what's a process that you can go through to repeatedly design good programs to accomplish goals? And it's one of those things that you kind of, I feel like like most people aggregate these little nuggets of wisdom over time of like, here are like certain ideas that work pretty well or a certain process that tends to result in good code. But this is like a 500 page book that tries to say like, okay, what's like a one through seven checklist that we can do for like, when we have a problem, how do we write code to solve it? Uh, and it's really, it's really interesting. That that sounds great. So how does that process start? I can't spoil the book for you. Okay. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's so I I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do it justice in a podcast, but it's, it's worth, it's worth going and looking at. And plus it uses Lisp as its language, which is, you know, plus 10 points for me. Yeah. So I'm functional languages are, um, I seem to get into the trap of like, getting started and then not really building anything in them so not learning anything deeply like i read functional programming for the object-oriented programmer by brian marrick um okay which for anyone who codes ruby and who's interested in like trying closure or functional languages i can really really recommend it's on lean pub and in that book he the first half of the book anyway he basically builds the ruby object model in closure huh interesting so he uses what object-oriented programmers know about how object systems kind of model problems uh, as like the problem that he's then going to model in a functional way. Interesting. So he builds an object system in, so he built, a, in a he functional built, he, way. He builds basically Ruby's object system in a functional way. So um, he maybe even goes as far as modules. So modules and classes. So he probably builds a module first, yeah. And then classes That's and then the dynamic dispatch. It's, it's a really good read. Cool. He has a couple books that looks like he's into the functional stuff. Thinking functionally in CoffeeScript, thinking functionally in Objective-C. Oh, okay. Thinking functionally in a non-functional world. I made that one up. That's cool. That looks good. I feel like we're sort of in the renaissance of people publishing their own things, which is super cool. It's like probably years ago, you wouldn't have been able to find a book by Brian. Like it just, he just wouldn't have written it because it would have been too annoying. Yeah. Uh, or he would have written one and, you know, been like, that was enough of, that was so much work, I'm not going to do it again. Now it's kind of like the distance between like, all right, I wrote this down and someone can buy it is like really small with like LeanPub and Gumroad. And like we have, our, we publish our own books too, in turn, like from people uh, at ThoughtBot. It's just, yeah. it's gotten a lot easier. I guess it, and, and that probably all started with, with blogging. People got back into publishing their own thoughts, like publicly. And mm-hmm. I guess once people do that a lot, the next step is, well, let's, take all these small thoughts and do them in the long form and mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a beautiful uh democratization yeah and if that's if that's something that the internet enables then i guess that's a good thing yeah i also feel like because it's light especially with ebooks because it's lightweight you can write a book on a really niche topic like because of the reach of the internet for example like brian maybe has an audience of a few thousand people that are really interested in fp and so like it's enough to make writing a book worth it whereas it wouldn't be enough for a publisher potentially to like print it out on paper and ship it to bookstores and things like that yeah yeah absolutely the sponsor of this show is DigitalOcean. yeah DigitalOcean, really in the real world in the cloud world where they exist they provide simple and fast cloud hosting built for developers like me like you, like your friends, like your coworkers. You can get started for as little as $5 per month, perfect for your little hobby projects and whatnot. We use DigitalOcean on Upcase. I've told you about that. Our Git server's hosted there. It's great. Hasn't gone down. Wouldn't be sure what I'd do if it went down. 
not very good at the servery stuff, but someone would definitely take care of it somewhere. I'd probably open a support ticket. That's what I'd do. Or maybe make Tom do it. Tom could help. DigitalOcean has crazy beefy servers. If you need a server that has 20 CPUs and 64 gigs of RAM and a 640 gig SSD drive, you can definitely get that. There's auto backups. There's snapshots. You can clone servers. You can deploy them like crazy. You can deploy them all over the place, different places. Uh, You can resize existing droplets to meet your needs as you grow, which is wonderful. You can get started, I'm told here, in as little as 55 seconds, which I find impressive. I have 55 seconds. Tom does too. We could probably both start make a server by the time I'm done. And we have one-click install for all kinds of stuff. So if you're like, not only do I need the server deployed and started, but I also need Ghost and Magento and Ruby on Rails, whatever that might be installed there, you can have that. There's also a crazy active community. People are helping out if you have, you know, those questions that come up when you're trying to do stuff. Like, what does DNS mean? And why do we need it? And what's a hard drive? And who am I, really, deep down inside? You can probably get answers to most of those on their forums. So you should right now, at this very instant, head over to digitalocean.com to learn more. And when you sign up, we want them to know and they want us to know that we sent you. So please use code GIANTROBOTS with a giant G and a giant R at checkout for a $10 credit on your new account. So thank you to our friends at Digital Ocean for sportioning, sportioning this, this broadcast. So are you still on the Cucumber team? I am, yeah. How's it going? Uh, good. At the moment, we're... Um, so we got Cucumber 2 out the door at the last Cucup conference in London in April. Um, and Cucumber 2 was... It was a, a big piece of work for Matt and I. It took us a while to do, and we were helped by, by lots of other people. Um, Tom Brand and Bjorn Rasmussen and uh, Oleg Super... I can't pronounce his name. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, it was a big piece of work going from the old code base, which was really difficult to maintain and didn't have a great software design. And we started off uh, with the intention of trying to refactor it slowly but surely and just move it to a better design. But it, it felt really difficult. So we just built it from the ground up. Uh, we extracted or we, we rewrote what we called the core of Cucumber. Oh, really um, interesting. Yeah, it was it was good fun. I guess I guess rewrites are something we often suggest, tell people that we should avoid, but I guess sometimes they're not they're unavoidable or we probably could have we probably could have refactored it, but it felt much too difficult to do and it was quite a fundamental change. The the original version of Cucumber modeled running Cucumber features as using the abstract syntax tree. So it was based around the data of a feature file. So if you think of a, a, a I don't know if if you're familiar with Cucumber. I am, yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I assume you would be, but um, a feature file contains scenarios, and scenarios are made up of steps. Um, but a, a feature can also have a background, which also contains steps. Now, these steps will then be run before the steps in the scenario. And if you start thinking about that as a data model, you, you have a feature which has one background, zero or one background, one or more scenarios. Then there's also scenario outlines, and it's quite a complex data model, really. Hmm. And all we wanted to do was run tests in the end. Right. So what we did was we, we took the parser and generated the AST, and then we, can use, then we built a compiler which compiled that AST into a set of test cases. Hmm. 
So this then means that we just have, we can think of it as a list anyway of test cases. Um, and a, te a test case has a number of steps in it. And that's all, that's all we need to worry about when we're running. So we don't need to know where we are in a feature file, whether we've already run the background or not. Do we have to run it again? We just take all of the steps from the background or the scenario or the scenario outline with the placeholders filled in. Mm -hmm. And we turn that into a test case. And so we can run that. And the first feature that enabled, I guess, from the user-facing side was we're able to randomize. Mm -hmm. So you can now take your entire Cucumber set of features, pass a random flag, and we can run them in any order. So that the process that where you parse it and then do what trans, uh, effectively like code generation or sort of like translation or something? Well, so it's not, it's not code generation. So we, we still have the step definitions in... Yeah, it's, so I'm thinking of it like a typical compilation thing where like, okay, we have this thing, we got to parse break it into tokens, parse it out or something, and then build an AST. And then from the AST, we, we need to get to code that we can execute eventually. And so for you, it's a little bit more mechanical because you have step definitions. But you call it a compiler, and it's basically compiling you know, these, these things to existing Ruby. Where the compiler is quite right, uh, I'm not sure. I, so one of the, part of the work that's going on at the moment is what we built for the Ruby version. We're moving over to the next version of Gherkin, um, which is going to bring this same kind of idea to the other languages. And mm -hmm. so we, the, the, Ruby, the Ruby version, again, has kind of been the, the place where we start with the ideas in Cucumber, and then we're going to move that compilation step down the stack into Gherkin itself. And then that will be the same in .NET, Java, JavaScript, all of those different implementations. Gotcha. So can I share a confession? Yeah. Uh, so I stopped using Cucumber a little while ago um, because for me, the process of or sort of like that intermediate step of having like an English version of things translating into Ruby code uh, felt a little bit too heavyweight for me. Sure. And I'm curious what your experience has been. Apparently, I mean, I imagine for you, it's it's been worth it. So I'm like, what are, what are the wins and, and what do you like about that? So for me, the, the translation step is... Um, can be difficult, um, and I think there are a few ways to think about that. It depends how much you value having the living documentation, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I think BDD doesn't require Cucumber or executable specifications written in an English language. Mm -hmm. But unless you have those, the uh, unless you use something like Cucumber or Fitness, the tests that are run never necessarily match up to the examples that you describe with your product owners you're you're with the business yep um and i think the way to clean up the the translation from english to code mm -hmm. is to make your step definitions really really short so that they very much just call a couple of methods or uh, on some kind of automation layer between your the english and the and the, the actual code that you're running which looks very much like the english that you're writing so constantine Kudryashov uh, wrote BHAT, which is the PHP implementation of Cucumber. Mm -hmm. And he has a talk called Taking Back BDD. And in that talk, he talks a lot about the relationship between behavior-driven development and domain-driven design. Um, and he, he likes to use his step definitions and the, the code inside the step definitions to start to really drive that ubiquitous language. And it's one of the one of the benefits of BDD anyway is that you're talking with your business a lot. You have to communicate. You have to 
you have to decide what the words are and what the concepts are from the problem domain, from the the business, from the the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And in Constantine's talk, he he drives really hard at using that language that you decide in your step definitions that you decided with the business. And he makes his step definitions read very much like the language that you should use. And that code is then the domain itself. So his step definitions aren't driving a web interface necessarily. They're just driving the, the domain itself from the outside. So if you have, if your domain is talking about a calendar, the, the step definitions would talk about creating appointments and would talk about setting locations and dates and things. And the only parts of the step definition that you'd use would be the parameters that are passed in, which is the just the data. But the language inside the step definition is, um, is very much the domain that you're trying to write. And I think it works, it works well if you do that using RSpec or Minitest or NUnit or whatever. You, you can write readable tests but mm-hmm. the thing is if the business language that those tests are around the is written in comments or something like that around there it's very easy for the comments to get out of date with the code mm-hmm. and i think that's that's the main the main benefit but cucumber is nice i i i like the chance to think in not in code before i write code mm-hmm. and when i'm writing when i'm working on my own projects yeah but the but the value of all of this is is Back to what we started with is the communication and collaboration between the people who want the software and mm-hmm. what the software should be. I will say that is that is the the thing I miss is sometimes it is nice to read a prose description of how something should work. Yeah, like it's nice to have those. And I think I think one of the interesting things about Cucumber and Ruby and the fact that it's it's Ruby that has fallen most away from Cucumber out of all of the fallen out of love most with cucumber i don't know if that's the right way of putting it but maybe it's because it's where cucumber started when it had web steps remind me what web steps are so web steps was uh used to be included with uh with cucumber rails i think Uh um so when you were writing your rails application you could write cucumber tests scripts if you like which said when i visit this page and i click the submit button, mm-hmm. then I should be on the. You have successfully received the payment thing, that you've successfully submitted the form. Yep, and it meant that people got used to writing cucumber tests, which just described the process of using the website, and it didn't really describe the behavior that was required. Hmm. What what behavior was it not talking about? Well, so. Uh, well, so let's, I'm trying to think of a good example. So if you think about Twitter, um, you could talk about, let's go, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send a tweet now. So I go to the homepage and I click the tweet button and I write, I am having a great conversation with at Rook and I click the tweet button. Mm-hmm. And I should see your tweet was posted and I see I am having a great conversation with at Rook at the top of my timeline. Okay. So that describes the results. But really what I the, the behavior that's important is that when I send the tweet, then what's important, what should happen with that tweet? 
Uh, everyone should see it. Everyone should see it. So the fact that, that I described the behavior as filling in a form, clicking a button, coming back and seeing it on my timeline mm-hmm. didn't actually touch any of the business value at all. Hmm. The real value is not that it's on my timeline. The result is that, um, so w- when I send a tweet, then my followers should see that. Mm-hmm. Or when I've composed a tweet with you tagged in it, then you should be given a notification. Gotcha. So you're saying that the the shipping the web steps with earlier versions of Cucumber encouraged people to sort of focus on the lower level, like this is on the page, I've clicked this thing, versus like a higher level business-focused description, like when I tweet, everyone sees it. Exactly that. So, so they'd probably be having the conversations where they, where they were talking about the things that the business needed to happen, the 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 value to the business, the behaviour that the system should exhibit. Then they go away and, and in Cucumber write those steps out as though it was just a script from a website. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, those those tests are great, but what if you're talking about the iPhone client? Mm-hmm. The behaviour is the same. The behaviour from the system point of view is the same but the behavior that the user would go through might have a different user different interface right and there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to use the same set of cucumber features against different interfaces and possibly even against the api as well as the front end hmm. interesting cool so if i gave you uh uh two months of uninterrupted free time uh what would you work on what interests you Oh, okay. Interesting. So, um, so funnily enough, right now, one of the things I'd, I'd like to work on is a way of recording podcasts. So, um, only because we're looking to start a cucumber podcast soon. One of the things we've been talking about doing, um, Mm -hmm. we, we did, we did run a few kind of live Google hangouts as kickstart Academy a while back. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're thinking about starting to write some, uh, do some cucumber podcasts and, um, it seems a bit frustrating. I, I guess you guys would know much more than I, I would about recording Skype calls and mm. things like that. And I really would like to play with WebRTC. I feel like you could write quite a nice little WebRTC client, which um, would enable kind of multi-track recording just through a web browser. It feels like it would be possible so that uh, all the streams for the different people would be recorded centrally uh-huh. and, and potentially locally as well. Yep. So the web browser would be able to save the save the stream locally to a file. You could record it uh, centrally as well, just in case of any problems, I suppose, and then send up the individual files at the end. And I haven't done anything other than a cursory glance at the WebRTC API, but that's it. It just I'm surprised there isn't anything out there already. I haven't looked, but it seems like it should be. <laughs> this is hilarious. It's, it should be doable. This is, this is such a, a programmer moment I'm seeing right here. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I want to, we should start a podcast. Well, the first thing we're going to need to do is invent a podcast recording uh, tool yeah. for the browser. So, so absolutely that, it won't be the first thing we do before we do yeah, the yeah. podcast. It just, it, it, while I was looking for how we were going to record it, um, it just, it just struck me that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I set I set you up. I, I set the ball up. Yeah. You just you just swung at it. Yeah, I know. I know. But uh, yeah, that's I, I do the same thing. Where you know everything is a programming problem when you're a programmer. Yeah, absolutely. Just you needs just... more software. Rub some software on it, and it'll get better <laughs> for sure. It, it, it's the most expensive way to get anything done. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But very fun. Yeah, but loads of fun. Yeah, for, for us, well, for not for anyone yeah. else. Yeah, all the frustrating people who watch us like come up with right. the next solution, and are waiting for you know actually something that works and something that's done and. 
good enough yeah. and whatnot. Uh, but that, I think that's a really good place to wrap it up. Cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, great fun. Do you have anything you want to like plug before we go? I, I guess, yeah. I'm, I'm speaking at SwanCon in September, Okay. Um, which is a software development and agile, agile development software craftsmanship conference in Swansea. So I'm speaking on a subject which I, th- I think the talk, the talk, I don't know what the talk's actually called, but I'm calling it Let It Go. Um, this is a Frozen reference? Yeah, it's a Frozen reference. It's uh, Surrender the Illusion of Control is the actual name of the talk. And I, I just have this theory that all of the loading up of the whole program in our heads that we tend to try and do as software developers is one of the things that maybe causes us to have design problems. Okay. When, so when is this talk? This is on the 7th of September at Swansea Conference in Swansea. Great. It's the second city of Wales. And um, I'm also doing a cucumber workshop there, or a BDD workshop. All right, on the, great. On final day. Cool. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 156. Thanks for listening.